Hey, I'm Mason King, host of the IBJ Podcast. And before we get into this week's episode, I want to tell you about the newest podcast from IBJ Media called Off the Record with the Indiana 250. In each episode, IBJ Media CEO Nate Feldman talks with a different leader on the Indiana 250 list of the state's most influential leaders. They discuss their vision for Indiana's future, their experiences in business, and their advice for other aspiring entrepreneurs. New episodes are released on select Thursdays. So go subscribe to the show on your favorite podcast platform so you can never miss an episode. Just search the Indiana 250 off the record. Thanks. This is the IBJ podcast for the week of November 13th, 2023. Brought to you by Taft. I'm your host, Mason King. Welcome back to the podcast, everybody. Regular listeners know I occasionally reference IBJ's annual list of the 25 fastest growing companies in the Indianapolis area. It is not an easy list to get on. To have a shot in making the top 25, your company needs to have revenue growth of at least 80% over the prior three-year period. So, for example, in 2018, the number one firm was the Garrett Companies, a developer of apartment complexes, which that year reported a jaw-dropping 1,284% in revenue growth between 2015 and 2017. Since then, the company has continued on its tear, appearing on the Fast 25 list in 2021, 2022, and this year, 2023. And here is a mind-blowing statistic. Since its founding in 2014, just less than 10 years ago, annual revenue for the Garrett Companies has risen from zero to $501 million in 2022, making it the 37th largest private company in Indiana. So, you might be curious to know, who is Garrett? Well, that would be Eric Garrett, founder and CEO of the Greenwood-based Garrett Companies. He's 46 years old. He grew up in Evansville and at, or maybe just a little, little bit below, the poverty line. As we'll hear in the interview today, one of the seminal moments of his childhood was moving with his mom into their very first apartment. And it's probably not entirely a coincidence that he found his niche in real estate, first on the finance side, and then picking up experience as part of a development firm. By the time he struck out on his own in 2014, he had a very clear vision of what he wanted to build, both in terms of the kind of product and the kind of company. Probably the quickest way to say it is that he constructed the Garrett Companies so that it would have nearly every element of the apartment development process under one roof, including site selection, design, material sourcing, construction, landscape ar architecture, and even a restaurant company with its own brands of brew house and coffee shop for mixed-use projects. The Gare companies then can offer those services to other developers to fund new revenue streams. Eric Garrett is our guest today for a fascinating conversation about the origins of the company, a business model that you could shorthand as a rising tide lifts all ships, the firm's recent growth to nearly 300 companies despite a very deliberative hiring process, and how his role as CEO has evolved 
as the firm has sped through several ages of the corporate growth process. Here's our conversation. It's my pleasure to welcome to the podcast, Eric Garrett, the founder and CEO of Garrett Companies. Eric, thank you for making time today. Thanks for having me. In the simplest possible terms, right? Let's, I'm a fourth grader that you met at a party. Uh, don't ask what I'm doing there. Uh, explain <laughs> to me what the Garrett Company does. Well, I have a fourth grader, so let's see if I can do this. The Garrett Companies is a vertically integrated. Oh, oh see, you've, you already lost me. Uh, <laughs> vertically integrated. The, the Garrett Companies develops apartment properties throughout the country. We develop them. So we go out, we find the sites, we uh, get all the entitlements, and we work with the city to make sure we can build what we want to build. We construct them. So we have our own construction company. We're out building these projects. Um, then we manage them afterwards. And there are other various parts and components of the company that aid all of those different facets of the company, development, construction, management, related companies that we own. But essentially, that's what we do. How do you describe the typical Garrett project? I mean, are there common elements basically in, uh, in your portfolio? Yeah, the common elements are you're typically looking at a 200 unit plus project. So you're talking about a 40 to $90 million project is the average size project. 99% of what we do is multifamily. We do have a restaurant group that has a, it's basically an amenity function uh, for our properties. We have a coffee shop as well. Uh, that we plug in uh, to a lot of the apartment properties, but uh, primarily apartment deals and in that size range throughout the country. Do we call this upscale or luxury or? Yes, <laughs> absolutely. There's, uh, I would say that, um, you know, there's the, the typical finishes that go into our projects, you know, are online or at par with what you would consider the highest end product in the market. Uh, not necessarily a high rise, but when we're talking about, we build dark apartments. So we're talking four story, two to three, four story projects. Now I say three story, we primarily build two and four, and there's a reason behind that. There's a, a bit of the system that uh, applies towards that. And um, you know, it, it seems to be a, a function better for our residents. So when you're looking for sites, I mean, you're looking for sites that will work for a high end project. Yeah. yeah. If, if you think about it, if, um, if it's a location that Whole Foods wants to be in, it's a location that we're going to want to be in. If if you if you want to boil it down to its simplest terms. Oh, that's nice. That's a good example. Okay. So yeah, and then you have, I'm sure, a clubhouse, fitness centers, outdoor yeah, playing, heated pool. Mm -hmm. A lot of the typical features that you would see in these in the, in the typical luxury property. Uh, then, as you go into the finishes, obviously we've got you know uh, plank flooring and. Uh, you know, nine foot plus ceilings and tile backsplashes and marble countertops and, you know, so on and so forth. So anything that you could, you would think of in a, you know, washers and dryers in every unit, is it be? We typically build a larger unit than most of our competitors as the market has started building, uh, downsizing the size of the units in order to cut costs. We felt like having a thousand square foot average is more important than the cost factor. So, I mean, obviously the ton of conversation in the multifamily industry about how high rents are. So do you feel like you have a strong enough niche there that you're not worried about, you know, whether or not people can absorb those rents? Obviously that's a concern for everybody. 
but yes, the, the, we differentiate ourselves by building, being able to, we control a large portion of the means of production that go into a multifamily project. We buy materials direct from manufacturers. We, we don't they deal with wholesalers or middlemen. We buy lumber directly from mills. We're buying futures on the CME and, and uh, hedging all of our lumber bets. So when people were paying $1,000 per foot for lumber, we were paying two to $300. So these type of, of you know, in, in-house capabilities allow us to deliver the same product at a much better cost basis. So what I'm saying is from a risk standpoint, we are building the same project for less money, which allows for a little more flexibility. If rents did come down, we could absorb it and be fine. Now, <clears throat> the reality is what we're seeing right now in the market is uh, what I would call the highest housing affordability gap that I've seen in you know my 20 plus years. And you know, back in <clears throat> late 90s, early 2000s, you know, you may only find a housing affordability gap. You know, that cost between owning a home and renting, you may only have a gap in markets like Chicago or New York or LA. Uh, but now it's every market, primarily because of interest rates. But combined combined with construction costs, which have increased, you know, post-pandemic. So I don't want to go too far down a rabbit hole here, but I I think that if I use history as the judge here and I look at what happened after dot-com or after the CMBS blew up or after 2000, 2008, 2007, 2008, the market pricing or construction costs did not go down. I think a lot of us expected in 2008 that, hey, just wait a second, because in 2009, we're going to build a home for the or whatever for the cheapest price possible. It didn't happen. And I don't think it's going to happen here either. I think it's going to flatline a little bit. The construction costs will continue to grow. I think that that weighs on pricing. I think there's a lack of apartments being built. I think there's a lack of single family being built. I think pricing, the ones that are being built are going to be high. I think that interest rates obviously continue to compound the problem. And I think we're going to have more of a normalized interest rate environment. So probably that 6% 6% range, not 2%, 3%. All of this tells me that we're going to have rental increases higher than expected over the next few years. Rental increases, uh, costs, more higher, higher rents. Higher rents. Okay, thank you. Yeah, I think there's only one way for rents to go when supply is down, households are continuing to be formed. I mean, yes, there are some pockets of, of overbuilding right now uh, where you have a lot of apartments in one location. But even but even that, you're talking about a year's worth of inventory. So if those projects lease for a year, they'll be stabilized. And the next wave of apartments is going to be a much the lower, a lower number of apartments being built. So therefore you're gonna have lower supply, the same demand, and no real other option but to rent. Get ready for an astoundingly dumb question. That's good for you? <laughs> well, higher <laughs> rents are good. I don't- I mean, obviously, yes. I mean, for us, it's it's a good thing. I don't know. I I have it's just one of those things where we have mixed feelings. I don't think it's good necessarily for the country, um, or for you know the average everyday working person. But it's certainly for the industry, it, it bodes well. It, you know, there are other things increasing in cost too. I mean, manpower, insurance. So you know, it helps offset some of those to uh, make the deals profitable. But you do have demand. I mean, for this high end product, or, or else you would be building. Hey, absolutely. I mean, yeah, we're yeah. you know. We do have other product types that we build, just not as frequently. We we do affordable housing as well. It's just a smaller piece of our portfolio. But you know, I see that as that's a very 
very much needed product type. It's very difficult to get done. Uh, it's very difficult to control costs to make sure it's really affordable. You know, it's um, it's a tricky game, uh, but we're, we're, we're part of that as well. Well, let me go back to what you were saying. I think what you were uh, alluding to with vertical, integra- vertical <laughs> integration and cost. So as you said, I mean, you're an integrated apartment developer, essentially meaning all of the services, all of the talent that you need are in-house. So uh, you know, you've, we've kind of covered this a little bit, but tell me more. Why is it to your benefit for the company to have its own construction arm, its own design arm, its own landscape architecture arm, even its own retail arm with a restaurant and coffee shop brand that you can plug into your developments? I mean, you... It, You've, you've built a kingdom where you only have to depend upon yourself. It's about efficiencies. I mean, if you think about you know what Henry Ford brought to the automobile and the assembly line, it's the same theory here. That we're trying to control the production of our product, and the only way to really control and to be efficiency, they have efficiency, is to build it and do it yourself, and to bring on those means. And um, we were willing early on to invest in. Uh, you know, it's a very capital intensive program to go bring on those entities, but we felt like, you know, it would, it would pay big dividends in, in a market like today. And it has So, yeah. And, you know, there are a lot of groups out there that are struggling with construction costs right now and uh, it's keeping their project on the sideline. You know, we're not, we're not having those same issues and we're able to get deals done still. Now, and I'll tell you, we also have, we have uh, created a, a private equity firm uh, based in Dallas, Texas. It's called Telus Capital, and I'm a, a founding member of that. And um, you know, we're providing a lot of general partnership capital to other apartment developers right now. So not only are we building our own product, we're also banking other developers, and you know, that's doing a lot of different things. It allows us to bring. Obviously, capital to the project and some expertise in the field, but then we're also bringing Garrett Construction and all of our other related arms to help them. And I'll give you a case in point: we have a project in Aurora, Colorado. That developer came to us. They had a capital need, uh, but they also had a construction issue because their costs were uh, astronomically high. Uh, We were able to come in, provide the capital. We also provided the cost base as a construction cost that was twenty thousand dollars a unit lower than their current third-party bid. So that translated into a $7 million savings on the project. Well, that $7 million savings on the projects translates into a deal that's now financeable. So the banks were willing to step up and do it. Because of our backing, the banks wanted to be involved as well. They were able to raise the additional capital because the deal now makes sense. And uh, we have about, uh, gosh, 15 projects right now in our pipeline, all tell us capital-driven third-party properties. So, Is TELUS under the Garrett umbrellas or is that separate? It is. It is? Okay. It's all part. So we'll hit on some of that stuff in a little bit. I wanted to go backwards real quick. So when you were a small child, mm-hmm. uh, where did you grow up? I grew up in Evansville, Indiana. So in a profile in Inc. Magazine a few years back, you said that you grew up in a single-parent household uh, pretty close to the poverty line. Is that right? Um, I would say we were below it, yeah. And there was a really interesting little segment of that story uh, describing you at five years old, you, I think, and your mom moving into your first apartment, mm-hmm. and like what a big deal that was. It was, a, it was, a, it was a, um, yeah. I mean, it sticks out in my mind today. I can remember 
I mean, I remember the smell outside. I mean, it was a, it was that, you know, uh, important of a moment in my life. I think, you know, my watching my mom, well, prior to that, she didn't have a driver's license. I mean, she would, we were riding the bus together for her to go to work. And then I would go to my grandparents' house on the bus alone. And she built, you know, this savings herself, working hard in an industry she didn't, you know, she just kind of lucked into and uh, was able to work her way up to get this first apartment. And I remember we went down, we paid the first month's installment of rent in the deposit. And we literally had, <laughs> I may be a little off on this, but it was like two bucks, maybe. <laughs> I think we had $2 left and and she wasn't even paid till the next day. And obviously we hadn't had dinner and we're hungry. And we walked down to the grocery store about three blocks away. And, you know, we're all excited. And she said, just pick out whatever you want for dinner. And of course, I'm five years old. I grabbed a bag of, of cheese puffs. <laughs> and that was our dinner. And that was, uh, you know, I remember that still today. So the greatest cheese puffs I ever had. What, uh, what do you remember about that apartment? At the time, it was fantastic. Um, you know, I, I still remember that there were issues with it. You know, typical maintenance issues that weren't being really addressed well. Um, uh, you know, the uh, area wasn't, it, it, it wasn't crime ridden, but it wasn't also the most safe location, you know, so there was a little bit of concern about getting to the bus stop and getting on the bus safely. And, you know, there were things that happened that just, you know, it, it that type, it was a, it was a very urban lifestyle and, you know, uh, near the poverty line. So uh, did you have your own bedroom or did your mom stay in the same room? Uh, we, I actually did. We had a two bedroom, so I had my own bedroom. So nice. Mm-hmm. And I, interestingly enough, we didn't have air conditioning. There's another moment. I remember when she bought our first window unit and we put it in my bedroom, which was really cool. <laughs> You're joking. How did you swing that? That's yeah, I don't know. <laughs> I, I guess she spoiled me. So yeah, I had to sleep in my mom's bedroom when I was a kid. <laughs> <laughs> so that is just fascinating. Now, of course, it's not lost on me that what you do for a living now is you make apartments. Is there any connection there? Any special oh. affinity that you had? <laughs> Absolutely. I, there, you mean a connection to just apartments in general because of that? Yeah, uh, yeah. Because yeah, I mean, I'm, I'm assuming you guys probably lived on in a few apartments, maybe. If you walked around and you asked all of our superintendents and all of our project managers something that I say, well, I say quite a few things over and over again, but there is one thing that I tell them when it comes to the finish of our apartments. And I say it every single time, you need to make sure that when this apartment's turned over, it is of the quality that you would want your mother to live in. And you know, when I walk into the property, if I see something that is just obviously not done right or not, you know, was rushed through, I just always ask the same thing. Was this, would you, would you leave it like this for your own mom? I mean, and of course the answer is no. So we fix it. I take pride in knowing that, you know, we're, we're turning over homes for people and, yeah, okay, it's not the same exact setting that I was in, but it, we're still turning over homes for people. You want them to be, you want them to be comfortable. You want them to be clean. You want them to be produced exactly how you want them, how you would want it, how you'd want to turn it over to your mother. So, mm-hmm. I, you know, that's the lesson I learned. I, I feel like that comes to maintenance as well. You know, if you have a problem in an apartment, if we're not jumping all over it, shame on us. It's it's our job to provide an apartment home that's free of of defect. So, my uh, my, my folks were divorced. My dad lived in apartments afterwards. And I always thought they were super cool. I mean, I love the whole idea of living in an apartment, but they they really weren't designed from a child's point of view. I mean, right. nothing, nothing to do. Yeah. And, and I mean, you don't have your own yard. Uh, I mean, you know, you, you walk up and down the stairs for fun. 
do you ever approach uh, your design process thinking about, you know, not just, you know, the person who's paying the bill, but the rest of the family? We do, but, you know, the market segment that we deliver to is a little different. So <laughs> one of our criteria for building an apartment deal, and I won't get into all of them, it's kind of a proprietary model, but, you know, one of the things we look for are good school systems. Now, is it because we have a lot of kids on our projects? No. And we've done the math. We've, we've only looked at the demographics because we get asked this at the city a lot at the cities we build in. Uh, but we only have a handful of, of actual children in any one of our projects. Uh, in today's world, um, the typical renter is either a empty nester or a new household being formed, or a new individual getting out of college or a new marriage, or once again, yeah, 55 and older, not, not the typical family with young kids running around. And we've built projects with, you know, playgrounds and other things, and they just don't get used. So it's, yeah. so, you know, we've, we've helped that situation in a lot of cases. In most cases, we're aligned with, you know, parks and other recreational opportunities that are just there. So, I mean, if you're at our property, you can walk across the street and, and, you know, markets like Colorado, for example, make it really easy because you can build on a trail system anywhere in the front range and you can find your way to a park or, a you know, someplace to hang out outside. So so you uh, then went to Indiana State University. Mm-hmm. And, and and what were you studying there? Political science, pre-law with a minor in history. OK, I did not expect you to say that. <laughs> <laughs> I was going to be the next athlete, Bailey. Um, I was going to go to law school. Are you serious? Your <laughs> heroes were lawyers. <laughs> I, I you know honestly you know you think about it you know i grew up in apartments and we moved out of the apartment we ended up moving um so the the, the man that is my dad that didn't have to be my dad uh he, he met my mom when i was probably 11 and you know with the dual income we were able to move on to you know single family home and mm-hmm. you know a little you know more suburban location and that type of thing and you know then you know that set the trajectory of my life but you know we never we still were never we we're obviously weren't we weren't wealthy and it's not like my parents were investing in real estate you know and so to me growing up i had no idea how things worked in the real estate industry yeah i saw shopping centers i didn't know who owned them i mean for all i knew the the tenants owned them you know same with office buildings same with apartments you know who, who knows who owns those uh, maybe the government owns them. I have no clue. So going through college is really no different. I, you know, I, real estate was not something that was in my sight. And I definitely wasn't smart enough to be a doctor. So lawyer seemed like a leader, you know, reasonable mm-hmm. occupation. <laughs> um, <laughs> I, so I, I passed the, you know, I'd taken the LSAT. I was on my way, you know, applying to schools and was actually playing a game of pool uh, at a bar with a, a really old guy, and I say old guy because he's probably he was probably my age now, but uh, seemed old to me in college, right? And he, you know, it was good getting around the pool, I guess, because at the end of it, he said, "Hey, I'm, uh, you know, I'm president of a bank. Um, would you want to come work for us in our credit analyst department and be a lender someday?" And I said, "Sure, that sounds like a great idea." Because I don't know, law school seemed great, but I wasn't really excited about going back to school. <laughs> so, yeah. It wasn't a job offer. That's right. <laughs> so, I, mean, you know, I, I thought, why not? Let's take a chance. And, you know, that obviously opened up a door into banking, which opened up a door into real estate. I was funding a project and 
it was a shopping center deal and I was on the financing side and I was working, I mean, tirelessly to get this loan done and ultimately went to the closing table. And this is back in the nineties. So yeah, keep in mind, we were, you know, we were still writing checks and handing out checks. It wasn't like we were wiring money everywhere. So I'm at the closing table, you know, wrote a check or handed a check to the broker that was involved and realized that he made three or four times on that project, that one sale, what I did in an entire year banking. So that, made me think, well, maybe I should talk to this guy. <laughs> so I started talking and chatting with him. And, you know, next thing you know, I'm, I'm in Chicago selling real estate at Marcus and Millichap and selling investment real estate, primarily apartments uh, throughout the Midwest. I met a developer, started doing uh, a lot of sales for, for him. We had a great run together and he asked me to come on and be his head of development. Once again, no development experience, but I understood banking and I understood brokerage and how the deals come together, how to make a deal. So I thought, well, why not? Let's give it a try. And it turned out to be a really good opportunity and learned a, a lot about the business. Um, and that was with Steve Bodner, uh, the SC Bodner company. Steve is a great mentor of mine. Many, many, many of the principles that I use today, you know, were instilled on me by Steve, you know, would definitely not understand the construction process as I do today if it wasn't for Steve. So big, uh, big anchor uh, in my career. And, you know, we did a lot of projects together. And from there, you know, set off on my own. So what was then your vision for the Garrett Companies when you founded it in 2014? It sounds like you really had a, a strong idea of how you wanted it to turn out. Yeah, you know, there are, our industry right, has a lot of turnover in it. Um, it's a very... I won't say cutthroat. That sounds that sounds bad, but it's a very very intense work environment. It's very fast paced, a lot of deadlines, a lot of pressure. You see turnover. You know, turnover. Some of our pure companies can be thirty percent. You know, especially on the construction side, where people just come and go as they you know, as they please. And I, I saw that as always being very disruptive. And I really wanted to understand the root cause of that. And I really believe the root cause of that is in most integrated companies, there's still this separation between development and construction and management. So something goes wrong in construction, they point the finger at development, development points the finger at construction, they point the finger at management, and it's just one, it's just chaos all the time, people infighting. So number one, I wanted to create a work environment where everybody understood the role that they played and the fact that a dollar lost on development, a dollar lost on construction, a dollar lost at management was a dollar that the company lost not that division, to a, a place where, you know, a lot of companies, they throw a project manager, for example, in construction, they throw them out on the island and they say, oh, here you go. Here's your $50 million construction project. Don't screw it up. And they're juggling a lot of balls or a lot of decisions that are made every single day that affect time, quality, and price. And they are making these decisions the best they can, but it doesn't always align with what, what the, whole, the whole company needs. And, and then inevitably what happens is you get to the project, they're scared to show any losses. You know, at the end of the job, all of a sudden, oh, wait, by the way, here's a million dollars in change orders. And everybody's throwing their hands up. Everybody's mad at each other. That guy gets fired. He goes to another job. It's just this constant battle. Uh, so I wanted to create an environment where that didn't happen. So we do a lot of things collaboratively. If a project manager has an issue in one of our projects that involves time, quality, or cost, he does so by talking with our construction committee. And, you know, we talk through it together. We make a decision together. If it's the right decision, we celebrate together. If it's the wrong decision, it's my fault. And I'm fine with that. 
I'll take yeah. blame everything um, because I was involved in the decision-making process. So, but it's created an environment where we have 5% turnover and only 3% voluntary turnover. And, you know, when it comes to our period, you know, that's why we have, oh gosh, 30 plus awards of best places to work in various different journals around the country. Uh, because, you know, we're, that was one of our, you know, one of our key goals in creating this entity. Beyond that, it was executing the game plan. We have a model that works. We stick to that model. It's not flashy. You know, we're not going to be on Forbes for some flashy business model. But at the same time, uh, we're not going to end up in the IBJ as a bankruptcy. So, you know, we're very specific about what we do, how we do it, why we do it. And we stick to the same exact program over and over and over and over again because it works. I mean, even something, I don't want to call this something as simple as vertical integration, but there are a lot of developers out there who don't try to take on all of those different roles the way you have. I mean, I'm assuming that that, I mean, it was kind of an unusual way to try to start a development company. Well, and you had your construction arm, I think, what, within the first year, I think. Well, we knew it was a key piece of it, the construction piece of it, no doubt. We knew that we needed to build the projects. Uh, we knew we needed to control that cost. We knew that, you know, uh, that was going to be a key component of us being successful. You know, there's the development process that, you know, once again, it's very specific, very targeted. And then there's the construction process, which is very specific, very targeted. So those two combined is the is really the value creator. That's how we're, we're creating the value that we are for our stakeholders. And we're doing a better job than our peers. You know, I, I've seen the, this is all anecdotal, but I've seen the, the pitch decks for groups that are raising funds and I'm looking at their return profile and realizing that in most cases, we're returning 30 to 40% more. And sometimes we're doubling what their average retail returns are on our projects. So, but that's done, it's not easy. It takes a very, very concentrated effort to realize margin in every small piece of the construction process, whether that be buying materials, whether that be, you know, the way we deal with subcontractors. I mean, it's very easy to go off and you get, a, you know, if you go bid a project, you may get 12, 15 bids for drywall, for example. Those bids, once they're scoped out and they're apples to apples, you know, because some people bid one thing, not the wrong, you know, the wrong, whatever. So once you really scope them down and you've got apples to apples, those bids can range 30, 40% across the board from the top, the most expensive guy to the least expensive guy. And once you got it, the key here is you got to find not necessarily the top price. That doesn't always give you the best quality or the best finish. And the lowest price doesn't always give you the best quality or the best finish. But there's a, there's somebody in there that you can work with that you can help them. In a lot of cases, they're smaller groups that you can help them grow their business. And I can't tell you how many times we've taken a small operation, a small drywall or a small painter or a small concrete company, and we've helped them scale their business to 100 plus people and work on a lot of our projects that way. Um, and because we're helping them, look, day one, if we would have handed them the check for the job, they would have went off and bought a new truck and been happy. But when we explain that, look, let's hold off on the truck. We're going to pay your guys directly. They haven't come to the job trailer. We're going to hand them checks. And then we're going to give you your piece of it. And let's keep this thing rolling. We'll help you pay your bills. Let us pay them direct. Let's grow your business together. And you know what? Five projects from now, you'll have a fleet of trucks. Just work with us. And that process has worked very, very well, partnering with our subcontract base. Once again, it is not easy. It's, it's labor intensive. It's like running a whole separate business entity, but it's somewhat necessary to, to, to drive the cost basis that we do. 
Wow, that was fascinating. Okay, let's take a quick break so we can hear from our sponsor. This is the IBJ Podcast. Taft, today's modern law firm, with more than 800 attorneys in eight primary Midwest markets and the District of Columbia, we provide solutions to the business issues facing middle market and emerging companies alike. We do this through a highly collaborative and inclusive team approach. Taft, the modern law firm. To learn more, visit taftlaw.com. All right, we're back with this week's edition of the IBJ Podcast and my interview with Eric Garrett of the Garrett Companies. At the very beginning, uh, 2014, you uh, your office was in a shed in your backyard. <laughs> well, I, it was... <laughs> I, I, I know the article you're talking about. It was, uh, you know, where it started from a barn or something like that. Yeah, right. I, I will say that it was probably the nicest barn that uh, any company was ever started. <laughs> so I had, I know, was there, I'd had a certain level of uh, success prior to, you know, the Garrett Company's leap off. So it was a very nice barn. But yes, okay. it was me in a barn. So you didn't have, there was no gas can back there. Lawnmower wasn't in the shed. No, no. The nice shed. <laughs> It was a nice. It was there was a nice bar there. <laughs> so, oh wow! Okay, party barn. <laughs> okay, I'd probably say when you when you hire your first employee, how do you persuade him or her to work for an apartment developer based in a barn? That's actually a funny story. So right off the bat, my first hire was going to be a head of development, and I was looking for somebody that had a civil engineering background, uh, had some scale and some projects, and so I went out on this national search, and I got resumes in. Uh, from all over the country and was actually down to uh, one gentleman from New York and one gentleman from Ohio. And they bought into the system because yeah, once again, I it, yeah, I was a startup, but I had a pretty big track record of being partners, partners on big deals. So, you know, so it wasn't like it was that, <laughs> it wasn't that hard of a job, job right? Uh, and I also had three projects already under contract and moving forward. And it, it was just, it was an easy sale really to hire somebody, but ultimately I, I took, I decided I'm going to take one more look through the resumes, make sure I didn't miss something. And at the very last resume I looked at, I noticed that he lived in Greenwood, Indiana, which is where I was at the time. And I looked at his address. I thought, well, that seems pretty close because my, my property line abutted um, a golf course community. So I looked up the address and realized that I could probably hit a driver from my edge of my property to his house. And I thought that was hilarious because I'm looking at his resume and, you know, he's Rose Holman guy, you know, graduated towards the top of his class, uh, was building, developed designing airport projects around the country and had a big hand in the Detroit airport and then Indianapolis airport and LaGuardia, their expansion. So he's, you know, uh, was a naval, a naval engineer in San Diego for a while. So he had a great resume and he lived right down the street and I'd never heard of him because he'd been traveling all over the country doing his projects. So I gave him a call and he always jokes because our interview took place at Applebee's because it was the closest place we could get to and have lunch together. So, <laughs> made my first hire at an Applebee's, but um, you know, that, and that was Ken Koziel and Ken is with us today. He runs our design group. And uh, but so from there, it just kind of snowballed and well, the key team, that, the, the key team that we hired, you know, our first, you know, seven or eight hires are still with us today. And, still thriving in the company and are in high leadership roles. 
you know, the only uh, we we did lose our C COO Matt Griffin, unfortunately, to a battle with cancer to this year, which was a real tough loss. You know, he was such an architect in the culture that we created, and you know, beyond that, the, the core team is still together. Uh, you mentioned yeah, now you're doing third party construction work now for clients. You also offer like third party uh, interior design services, landscape architecture services. Uh, what's what's the strategy there? Why go third party? Um, well, it's just a revenue generator. I mean, and we're, you know, once again, I think from a third party standpoint, well, let's talk about interior design, landscape design. Absolutely. It's just about creating revenue and making those business units profitable outside of what we do at the air companies. And it, it shows them what other groups are doing as well. You know, we can kind of start looking at you know, things that maybe we need to add or not add to our projects. And, you know, the majority of the projects we're dealing with are not, it's not like we're competing with these, with these groups, you know, they're in other geographic locations, but, you know, it gives us good education there and obviously keeps that, that entity as a, a revenue generating entity. On the third party construction side, obviously we're doing a lot of that to bolster TELUS in that group because, you know, we want to, the reason for TELUS for me personally was I was looking at it as a, an ultimate method of investment and, you know, putting capital that I have at work and an outside group and in other projects. And I also thought it would be a way to help mentor young developers, you know, grow their business. Now, what's actually happened there is that the groups that we're dealing with really don't need any mentorship. A lot of them have been in business longer than I have, but they, they, they don't have, you know, the in-house construction capabilities and the ability to bring in basis. So that's why that's worked. And, so yeah, that you know that's growing a big portion of our third-party construction platform, but we are doing third-party construction work outside of Telus. And a lot of people ask me why? Why would you help a competitor? Because in a lot of cases, they're building close to some of our projects. So why would you help a competitor get a compelling cost basis to go compete with you? And the real answer is a: it's a short-term piece of competition. So I don't see it being you know I wouldn't do something if I thought it was going to break the market. Uh, but bigger picture, the more construction volume that we do, the more subcontractor base that we work with, and we somewhat corner the market. You know, the deals that we have in the pipeline right now, I mean, in markets like, you know, the Front Range in Denver or down in, you know, Orlando or Fort Myers or Tampa or Phoenix, we will be one of the larger third-party or just builders in general in those submarkets, and that that comes with a lot of control of some contract base. It comes with a lot of control of pricing. It comes with, you know, we're going to be one of the groups that every sub wants to be on the bid list for. Which you know, it's a numbers game. If I can get twenty five quality subs to get a project, I'm going to get a better, more cost effective price. Now, there is one little piece of this that I think is very important because when I talk about price and I talk about subs and I talk about controlling price, most people think. Oh, well, he's just going in, getting the best price he can. You know, who cares about the sub? Well, I think I've told you that obviously a big piece of this is the relationship piece with the sub. But even if it's somebody we're doing a one-off project with, and this goes across the entire company, one of the things that I set out to at the beginning and I really believe in is that in a, pro- in a deal, it doesn't matter if it's a construction contract, a subcontract agreement, buying a car, buying it doesn't matter what it is. If both sides aren't making a nickel, if there's not a good deal being made where both sides are profitable, 
it's not a good deal. And it's not one that's going to work out well. It's not going to work out well for us or the sub. We may think it works out well for us in the short term, but in the long term, I've seen so many companies go down the path of, I don't care about the sub. I'm going to work the best deal I can. I'm going to manipulate the contract. I'm going to force him into doing work that may not, may or may not be a part of his contract because I'm the bigger guy. And if we go to court, I'll win. He'll be too scared to sue me, blah, 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 blah. I've seen this happen across the industry so many times. All it does is create chaos. It creates a sub work base that doesn't want to work for you. Mm. It makes it difficult to find subs to work for you. And I, there are pure groups out there that I know of in our general market that do that for a living. And it's just not, it's just not a good way of going about business. You mentioned the, the first uh, interview that you had at, at Applebee's. And I know early on, one of the company's calling cards almost was the very intentional hiring process mm-hmm. I think where um, anybody you brought on would sort of need to be vetted uh, by people in three different departments. Is that right? Did I read that right? <laughs> you have grown so much. Are you still able to devote that much attention to the hiring process? Does that still work the way you did before or is it different? Well, yes, it does. And I call, I used to call that the three touch rule that somebody in, in marketing and HR told me that's a bad idea to call it that. Uh, but we, uh, so it's now. <laughs> it probably yeah. is. <laughs> <laughs> You're right. So, um, it is, but it is very well intact. Yes. You, you, if you're going to hire, you be hired at the air companies, you're going to meet with three different groups, three different facets of the company. Uh, it doesn't really matter which ones. And you're going to be vetted probably less on uh, your, I mean, yes, if you're a development manager, somebody from the development team is going to meet with you and they're going to be looking at your background. Do you bring the capabilities, the educational background? Can you do what we need done from a functional side? But then you're going to meet with three other people from various departments that are not looking at that. They could care less if you know what a, a plat is or a survey. They want to know that if they're sitting down talking to you, mm. is it a cultural fit? Are we going to enjoy being with each other? Because, um, yeah, I mean, we spend as much time with our coworkers as we do our family in some cases. So we might as well make sure we all like each other and we get along and we all buy into the same concepts. Because if not, it's going to be kind of a miserable miserable life. As the company has grown and you've experienced the kind of the different seasons in the life of a startup and then an established company, how has your role as CEO changed? I mean, is it different now than it was at five years old, different than when you were two years old? hundred percent. Yeah. I, you know, my, my role now is a facilitator and I'm looking at, if you think of it as a water hose, and you know, the water, you turn the water on, the water doesn't come out. That's well, probably because the hose is kinked, right? So you have two or three hoses and or two or three kinks in your hose, and you're trying to, you know, there's different methods. You can turn on higher pressure and try to blow the kink out, or you find out where the kink is and you undo the hose. And I'm kind of the guy that's running up and down the line trying to find the kink and I'm twisting it and letting the water flow. And that's my job. So I'm looking at anywhere I see a hinge point that is preventing us from meeting our goals. And that's it. That's all I do every day. I solve issues. You know, I've in place a, you know, a uh, Rob Martinson has now been named the president of the company. He's doing a lot of the day-to-day operational stuff, making sure that, you know, things are flowing together. Our, our uh, um, uh, head of operations, uh, Jamie Allen, is, you know, right there by his side. Once again, just making sure that we're functioning from, you know, in, you know entity to entity. 
uh, and the policies and procedures are being followed, things of that nature. And then we have a very robust, um, I call it a strategic advisory team uh, that's you know, comprised of all of our leaders in our company. And yeah, we're meeting quite frequently. But once again, I'm very focused on immediate needs to fix problems that are preventing us from hitting our goal, whether it's our big picture goal or just our weekly goal. Um, so that's my, you know, with all the things I love, I mean, when I got into the business and still my passion is finding deals, finding sites, underwriting the sites, figuring out what's going on the site. I don't get to do a whole lot of that anymore, um, but that's okay because we got a good team of people that are doing that. Well, this is great. I mean, I have covered real estate here or been involved in the real estate coverage here for about 20 years. And, uh, and just in the last hour, I feel like I've gotten 25% smarter. <laughs> This is terrific. Thank you for explaining to my uh, fourth grade self how this works. It is honestly just just brilliant. And I really appreciate the time that you spent with us. No, I appreciate you having me. And uh, yeah, likewise, it's been, a, it's been a good conversation. My thanks again to Eric Garrett. And folks, before you get on with the rest of your week, there are a few stories in the latest issue of IBJ I want to bring to your attention. First up, how much money should hospital CEOs earn? In central Indiana, where hospital prices and profits have come under the microscope, some consumer advocates are pointing to big executive pay packages and say the issue is ripe for review. John Russell has the story. Also in this week's paper, Dave Lindquist has an accounting of the final set of grants from the Crystal DeHaan Family Foundation, which is distributing its final $55 million. And Leslie Weinbenner reviews the distinguished career of former Purdue University president and Indiana governor Mitch Daniels, this year's recipient of IBJ's Michael A. Carroll Award for impactful community service. And again, you can find these stories in the latest print edition of IBJ or online at ibj.com. And thanks again for making time for the IBJ podcast. I'm Mason King. Hang in there, everybody. We'll be back again next week.